Waldy and Bendy. Hello and welcome to Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art, the podcast no one could stop. I'm Valdemar Janusztak, art critic of the Sunday Times, although some people dispense with all those tricky consonants in there and they just call me Waldy. So thank you to the nice German listener who wrote in recently to point out that Waldy or Valdi is a very popular dog's name in Germany. That's good to know. So just whistle and I'll come running. But someone who never runs when you whistle, who never sits when you tell him to, never fetches the ball when you throw it past him, is my co-host on this podcast. If this man had a spirit animal, it would be a Tasmanian devil, or perhaps a man-eating tiger. He takes no prisoners. He never says sorry. Bouncers cross the road when they see him coming. He's Scotland's wildest art historian. Bendor, Bendy, Grosvenor. So, Bendy, what rules are you going to be breaking today? None at all. I hate breaking rules, Valdi. Do you know, I got through my whole school career without once getting lines or into trouble of any kind at all. Really? Uh, yeah. But, you know, somebody oh. asked me why I call you, I say Waldy. You call yourself Waldy. I say Waldy. Yeah. And, um, the, the answer is because I'm from the North and working class, so I have to say Waldy. <laughs> You're very posh. That... You say Waldy, like I suppose you say garage. Uh, yes, I suppose uh, it's only it's, it is actually what people. When I was at the Guardian, that is what they used to call me. They used to call me Waldy. Well, Obviously, my name is Valdemar. You know, so I'm not going to go there. <laughs> but um, it was very humiliating. The thing about the dog, you know, you can imagine all these people running around Germany going Waldy, Waldy, Waldy. <laughs> all these happy dogs barking away. <laughs> oh, the crosses we have to bear. Um, <laughs> Bendy, I'm not sure we're going to be able to fit everything we want to into this podcast because it's overflowing with topics. Uh, in a moment, we've got Her Majesty the Queen on the podcast. Greetings, Mum. We've also got Venus, the goddess of love, and in a major return to Bendor Grosvenor's farm, we're going to be commencing our quest to find the best horse in art. So all that's coming up. And don't forget, if you want to see the pictures we're talking about, lots of extra information, it's all on the podcast pages of zczfilms.com. First, though, it's time to take the calendar off the wall and to study it intently, because the calendar never lies. Dodgy, 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 anniversary. Oh, that beautiful music, the dodgy anniversary jingle, written specially for us by Mozart. It can only mean one thing. In the time-honoured art world practice of finding a dodgy peg on which to celebrate something or other, we're remembering an artist who was born 247 years ago, in the town of Griefswald in Swedish Pomerania. Bendy. 247 years since his birth. If that isn't a dodgy anniversary, nothing is. Who are we talking about today? Caspar David, I think you say. Caspar David Friedrich. And I think in the days that he was born, in 1774, Griefswald was part of Germany, in fact. Um, so, yes, he's uh, considered to be Germany's uh, most celebrated 19th century romantic artist. And we're going to be mm. discussing him. On my part, I have to say, well, there was some trepidation because uh, we're stepping outside my comfort zone. But he was born in, in, in 1774. That's within your kind of limit of 1800, isn't it? Well, you see, I, st I stop after 1800. He starts painting. Mm. Actually, he only starts painting in 1807, which is interesting. We might touch on that. Um, so I stop with anything made after 1800. And you're sort of more modern and contemporary. So we're sort of tentatively meeting in the middle. Um, mm. And I'm not quite sure how this is going to work out. It's going to work out really well because I love Caspar David Friedrich. And I think uh, he's an artist who has not been talked about enough, who's been brushed over a bit in recent times. There's a lot to say about him. He's fascinating. And also I know, because now that I know you quite well on these podcasts, you know, I've got a, I've got a sense of what your spirit likes and where you want to go. I've got a feeling that you're going to really enjoy talking about his work because it's right up your street. You know, it's right up your street, in my opinion. Okay, well, should we set the scene with perhaps his most famous picture for listeners to imagine? Um, 
The title is uh, Wanderer Above the Sea of Fog. It's a painting residing in the Kunsthalle Museum in Hamburg. I think actually it's better with its German name, which is Der Wanderer über dem Nebelmeer. And it is a picture, uh, the foreground is a sort of rocky promontory on which a man in a, in a dark frock coat has his back to us and he's leaning back on a walking stick. And he is looking out on a, a foggy landscape uh, through which pierces various rocky outcrops. And there's a sort of rolling mountainscape that stretches into the background beyond him with a cloudy sky. And uh, it's become one of those iconic picture postcards of art history, isn't it? It's usually in the sort of top 100 landscape paintings, isn't it? Um, and uh, it's a picture that that I love, actually. And you're right, I do like it. It sort of speaks to my solitary and mournful side. Mm, that's what he does, Friedrich. He speaks to everybody's solitary and mournful side. And I mean, yes, I mean, you can't go wrong with this. Lonely bloke on a lonely mountain looking out over a huge fog. I mean, it absolutely screams of whither am I going? What's it all about? What have I got in front of me? Is there a path? What are we here for? What does the world mean? All that kind of stuff that you always get in Friedrich. But he has got this fantastic talent for boiling it down to you know a single quite telling image or a, or a single quite telling moment um and this this picture that the wanderer uh, do you know what this has had an enormous impact on or well on my life but specifically on my tv career do you know why this one painting no it's one painting yeah enormous impact on my tv career okay go on tell me why I was making a film about um, Michelangelo, as it happens, a couple of decades ago now, and I was standing in front of the tomb of Julius II in the church of San Pietro in Vincoli in Rome. And you know how it is when you're filming, you know, the cameraman's always saying, right, well, this is the angle I want. This is where I you know, stand in front of it. I can see the picture really well then. I can see the thing behind you, the sculpture behind you. So you sort of align yourself to what the cameraman can get into their frame, right? And I suddenly thought, why do the people want to be looking at my face while this thing's behind me? Surely they, what they want to be looking at is this fantastic monument by Michelangelo. So I, I said, right, well, I'll tell you what, I'll turn my back and I'll look at it and everybody will look through me to the work behind me, to the great Michelangelo uh, tomb to Julius II. Uh, I said, and this is what Caspar David Friedrich would always do. You know, he'd turn people's backs because it makes you look through them and beyond. And the cameraman, who's a wonderful guy, a very talented guy called Simon Niblett. He said, well, you can't do that. I said, why? He said, you can't, you can't turn your back on the audience. I said, why not? They, they, they want to look at the sculpture. They don't want to look at me. He said, they, they don't want to look at the back of your head. I said, well, look at, look at Caspar David Friedrich. Anyway, to cut a long story short, since then, there has not been a programme I've made that doesn't feature my, the back of my head, well, prominently it's... staring at something ahead. And it's all down to Friedrich. Well, it's definitely your best side, Valdi, so I can... <laughs> Mom, TV history. Caspar David Friedrich's impact on TV history. Well, that's 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 a good tale. But actually, yeah. it's quite interesting because the figure with their back turned to the viewer does appear a lot in his paintings. And I think it's a really important point, actually, because um, one of the things I love about Friedrich's landscapes, often painted in from about 1810s onward, he died in 1840, um, there is never a hint of that sort of sentimental kitsch side that you get with so many 19th century landscapes, especially those painted from the mid 19th century onwards, those dreadful Victorian pastiches that we're so familiar with when we think of 19th century landscape painting. You never get that in Friedrich. And that's because we never really have to engage with his, his figures, faces or characterizations. <laughs> the, the, the figures are there saying, look this way. And they, they yeah. don't overwhelm the narrative of his, of his pictures, which I think is, is obviously deliberate and a part of his success his art has this it's like a tunnel it always drives you into it and to the back yes you know you kind of can't help but it's like being in a car or something and rushing forwards that's the direction you're just going into it into it into it and the, the figure with, with the back of the head to you which by the way has a german name you know did you know the germans have a name for someone standing there in a picture with their back to you is it valdius or something like no that? no it's a it's an rucken figure a Rucken figure, is, figure is this bloke here on the top of the mountain and all the oh. other people in Friedrich who are looking, as it were, into the picture, taking you on this journey into it rather than out. But the when I did art history, I remember the thing that, that everybody stressed about Friedrich, and I think this is very important. When he when he moved to Dresden, so most of his career took place in Dresden. So what, what, he was born in this Baltic region, which I call Swedish Pomerania, but yes, it was in Germany. But then he moved to Dresden where he became successful. But he was the first 
artist who turned landscape painting into something religious. And he did it in a, there's a very notable altarpiece by him called the Techen Altar. I think it's also called something like the Cross on the Mountain. It's basically a mountain with a crucifixion on top of it and fir trees around it in one of his moody lights. You know, it's all very full of emotion and sublimity. But it was painted for a chapel, mm-hmm. for the Techen Chapel. So there's, in fact, I remember there's a famous art historical quote about somebody saying, how dare Friedrich let this picture creep into the church and climb up on the altar? Uh, Friedrich said, he was very religious, obviously, that um, he wanted to paint a religious picture in which the landscape did the talking. That's, that was his whole thing, that the spiritual meaning of the landscape wasn't necessarily spelt out with figures and stories and mythologies, but the landscape itself gave you that feeling. And this, the Techen Altarpiece, it really does that. I mean, it's, it's, if paintings could make a noise, this thing would be like a giant choir of angels going, oh, <laughs> up there on the mountain. You know, it's a really tactile feeling you get from him. So um, that's a very big deal. At the beginning of Romanticism, to imbue the landscape with those kinds of powerful spiritual forces and, and, and echoes and moods, that's a, that's a big thing in art history. And am I am I right in thinking that this this is developed from a, a German idea of, of Lutheran Protestantism, uh, the idea that God is manifested in nature, and yep. that man standing on a promontory admiring nature is admiring God, and that's what uh, Friedrich was doing when he paints these pictures like this. But so, do you think we're wrong to primarily see him as uh, this great Romantic landscape painter? Is he is he actually just a religious artist painting in a moment of Romanticism? Well, what's what's unromantic about about having a religious undertow to to your art? I mean, surely Turner even you know, manages that in a few of his pictures, in, in the sense of you get a feeling there's a spiritual, religious awe bubbling up. Um, I, I think I think he's absolutely a romantic painter. In this case, the emotions that he's striving to uncork in us or inspire in us are emotions of religious awe and a sense of being at one with nature and with God. No, I just mean it, we don't generally tend to link romanticism with such overt religiosity. Uh, perhaps I'm thinking um, mm. too much of, of of English romanticism. I'm thinking of you know uh, Wordsworth wandering lonely as a cloud and and paying attention to to nature more as an act of sort of aesthetic rebellion against the ancien regime and against the sort of uh, the classicism of civilization. Um, whereas I, th- I think that's that's exactly what's also happening in Friedrich. Yeah. Um, let, let me take you to another of his pictures, the, the very famous one, it's called the Sea of Ice. Do, do you know that one? Yes. When you first look at it, you think it's like a broken ship, a shipwreck or something, yeah. but it's actually just these, these big jagged slabs of ice that are rising up as if they've been exploded in the, in the North Sea or something. It's, it's got a really powerful sense of, of, of carnage and despair and, and a breaking up, but, but it doesn't show anything like that. It just shows ice in the landscape gathering in this, this jagged heap. It's almost impossible to look at that without thinking to yourself something along the lines of, this is what happens to civilization, or this is my life c- cracking up at the end, or th- you know, those kind of negative conclusions about shipwrecks and about, about, about a life splintering to an end. And yet none of that is stated. It's all implied with this rather powerful but also tragic scene of the ice somehow crushing together in a broken way. And that feeling, I mean, you know, later on, American artists would do that, wouldn't they, when they painted Niagara Falls and things, these sort of giant waterfalls. That, that feeling, it's not even religion, is it? it it's, it's, it's spirituality, I think, is, a, is perhaps the better word for it. Mm. Um, and he's, he becomes less overtly religious. I mean, the Techen altar's got a cross in it on the top of the hill, but most of his other stuff doesn't. But you've got a lot of ruined abbeys, ruined churches. I suppose there is a recurring sense that, that the church offers some kind of salvation for humanity. But a lot of his best pictures don't refer to it directly. They just refer to this human need to find some kind of meaning in life, um, so, some kind of thing to aim for. Mm. Now, as much as I admire Friedrich's landscapes and landscapes of the period, I don't know that I yearn to have one on my wall. It's not something we've chosen for our on-the-wall segments. Mm. I I don't yearn to go and collect one. My acid test for these things is is the great Kenneth Clarke. He said that the time you should spend looking at a painting is the time taken to eat 
and peel an orange. That's the sort of <laughs> ideal time to look at a painting. And I, I, I can't say that I would uh, get through the whole orange for each Friedrich. I might want to move on to the next one. So well, that, that leaves me in a very bad position because I could, I could peel and eat an orange in about 10 seconds. So I mean, <laughs> 10 seconds of Friedrich is not good. Listen, I'm surprised, Bendy. You know, you're a soulful man. You're a man of the north. You know, you like your winters. You like the cold. Uh, I would have thought he'd be right up your street. But um, here, as always, he's dividing opinion, isn't he? That's the thing about Friedrich. Uh, but what I think, I hope even you'll agree with this, is that he's someone we, we actually need to see more of, you know? I mean, he's a rare artist. We don't yes. get enough chance to look at him. Yes. So please, anybody listening out there with the power to bring more Friedrichs to Britain, bring more Friedrichs to Britain. Anyway, I think we better move on, Bendy. Um, the other thing that unites you and Friedrich, of course, is your, is your love of nature. You know, he loved the German mountains. You love the Scottish borders. Uh, and this shared love of the natural world, that's something we're going to celebrate next. Bendel Grover had a farm. E-I-E-I-O Yes, listeners, by public demand, it's the return of Bendor Grosvenor's farm, where we join him up there in Scotland to investigate the various fascinating ways in which animals have appeared in art. Now, so far, we've done donkeys, we did sheep, we've done cows. So now it's the turn of the animal that keeps popping up most often in art through the ages. Bendy, in the words of your guy up there, Tam O'Shanter, Nay, man can tether time or tide. The hour approaches. Tam must ride. And so must we, Bendy. So what have you saddled us with today? We are riding fast away from your Scottish accent, fleeing it in terror. Um, <laughs> so uh, I should explain to the dear listeners that uh, normally the tradition is with our lists is that uh, Waldy chooses the shortlist himself and he might generously let me choose one or two but uh, for our quest to find the best horse painting in western art uh, and we're going to do this in two weeks so this week is the best individual depiction of a horse in western art and for our quest um, I've wrestled control of most of the shortlist and that's basically because uh, although I can't ride and although we don't have any horses here where I live um, I am named after a horse Weldy. Ben Dorr was the name of a famous racehorse uh, won the derby in 1880 so I'm, I'm assuming some sort of horsey authority here. You're named after a racehorse come <laughs> it's on. It, it's what the, um, the British aristocracy used to do they would name their children after their pets. Um, you, you are <laughs> named after a horse that won the derby well, Bendor is a, is a ridiculous uh, family name. Uh, and actually, it's a two-word name, Bendor. It's a heraldic term, meaning band of gold. And the Groveners would call various things Bendor. They would call their children Bendor or their horses. Um, and I am the latest sad, yeah. tragic incarnation of this tradition. Well, it's a good job you're not called Shergar. That would have been worse. <laughs> Bendor at least is better than that. Anyway, we've got our shortlist of five, and we'll go in sort of fairly random order, and then we'll tot up some scores at the end, shall we, with producer Tear's input, and we'll see who comes out on top. Yep. So can I suggest that we start with uh, perhaps the most famous artist of horses in, uh, in Europe, at least, uh, George Stubbs. And I've chosen his epic, enormous picture hanging in the National Gallery in London, uh, which is called Whistle Jacket. It's uh, a depiction of a rearing stallion. Uh, it's huge. It's, it's more than three metres high. Uh, and it was painted in 1762 for one of Stubbs's major patrons, the second Marquis of Rockingham. And, and Whistle Jacket is a chestnut horse. He's rearing up against what is unusually a sort of plain background, and that is what accounts for this picture's, I think, striking modernity. It's a centrepiece of the National Gallery, one of the most famous paintings, I think, in British art, because we love our pictures of horses here in Britain. And, and it's a picture I absolutely love. Does it work for you? Yes. I mean, you can't miss it at the National Gallery, and they've hung it so that if you're at one end of the building in the Sainsbury Wing, you look down the corridor and there it is at the other end, isn't it? It's framed by a doorway. It's absolutely central. I love Stubbs. I think um, George Stubbs was, a, was one of those fabulous uh, Rococo artists who, again, ignored for a while, but then brought to life with this great spirit of, of the English and the way they love their horses and the English countryside and, and, and the Derby and, and all that kind of stuff, all that sort of horsey world. He made something noble and, and fascinating out of it and very elegant out of it. 
this is funny enough, it's not my favorite stubs i know it's the biggest and, I, and it probably is the most famous but it, it's not my favorite i tend to like the ones where you've also got some people in there or the the groom holding the winner of the derby outside the the shed in which they wash them down you know i like those um but it is unquestionably a really interesting picture so you've got this great big horse rearing up on its back legs there's no background to speak of except for a little bit of shadow that implies that it's standing on some firm ground so it's either an incredibly radical picture for the times i mean no one had painted a picture of this sort of this size with a canvas background that's un untreated before it hadn't happened had it this, this had never happened in art before so it's either an amazingly brave gesture mm -hmm or it's unfinished. And when I say unfinished, I don't necessarily mean uh, that he, you know, he ran out of time or didn't get around to doing the background, doing the landscape, which is what you normally get in stubs. You always get a background everywhere else almost, don't you? I mean, there's the other suggestion, which, I, which certainly strikes a chord with me, is that it was meant originally to have someone riding the horse, uh, probably the king, George III, right? And that that never happened. The guy that commissioned it fell out of favour with the monarchy. That he never got round to painting the guy on the back. Now that, looking at it visually, that convinces me. I have to say, I, I would not be surprised if that's the truth. And he couldn't get to paint the king on the back, so he just made a big thing of the horse. It is a decent interpretation for me. Ah, okay. Well, I'm. I, I would hesitate to disagree with you, Valdi, but um, I'm not sure that would work. Uh, I think we need to sort of consider the the horsey aspect of it. So Whistlejacket at this point um, had been quite a celebrated racehorse and was retired now to go to stud. And this is when they used to breed from um, from winning racehorses in the hope of breeding uh, winning foals. Uh, and sometimes these stud fees would be absolutely extraordinary. Um, and it seems to me that this picture of Whistlejacket is... is absolutely all about the horse it's about showing off how sort of anatomically perfect the horse was and part of the reason i think that of course stubbs is is well known in art history for spending he spent literally two years in a shed in lincolnshire uh, before this was painted, stripping down horses, he would flail them, take the skin off and boil them down, sort of uh, draw anatomically the various limbs. So, so Stubbs is all about getting horses absolutely right. And the interesting thing about Whistlejacket is that anatomically, the horse is not actually absolutely right. It's it, He's slightly played with the composition so that at once you see the front of the horse's face and also the back of the horse's, for want of a better word, uh, ass. What's the rear of a horse called? Isn't it the rump? Whatever it is, the back end. <laughs> in this horse, you see all the rippling muscles. You see, you see what it's doing. It's not actually in a sort of rearing pose that would work to have a rider on it. So, for me, I think the picture is all about saying here is this prime example of of an Arabian horse. It's the colour that the purebred Arabians were supposed to originally have been with a slightly white tail. So it's an advert for, for the Marcus Rockingham, the patron. It's an advert for his horse, and it's an advert for how, how, what a brilliant breeder the Marcus Rockingham was. Hmm. Let's just agree that it's a great painting of the horse. No argument about that. Well, I did read somewhere, and I found this cheering, that Whistlejacket was named after um, some kind of medicine that was around at the time that was made out of gin and treacle. So just as you're named after Bendor the racehorse, so Whistlejacket the racehorse was named after a medicine made of gin and treacle. That's lovely, isn't it? It sounds tasty. Now, should we move on to another artist who also used to study uh, horses' anatomy to such an extent that he too would strip the flesh off and, and get down to the bones and the sinews, and that's Theodore Jericho. And I've chosen the painting from about 1813. It is actually, by coincidence, also in the National Gallery in London, and it is a depiction of a horse startled by lightning. And I think how Jericho moves horse painting on from Stubbs is it's not just anatomically uh, wonderful, this picture. I mean, the, the horse is so sort of perfectly poised. But he addresses the question of how do you present emotion in a horse? I think most artists want to show a startled horse, and Stubbs did this in his, in his pictures of horses being attacked by lions and things, was show the, the emotion in the, in the pose of it, so rearing up. Uh, and teeth coming out, and it's all a little bit over the top. Whereas Jericho manages to do it just in the manner of the horse's eye, and I think it's absolutely beautiful, as, as the horse is, is startled by the bolt of lightning that we see in the top right-hand corner of the canvas. It's fabulous painting, absolutely fabulous painting. Yes, it's got all the kind of stub stuff in it. By that I mean 
it's a very convincing horse. You know, you know that the person that painted this knows all about the anatomy of the horse. I mean, particularly the way the, the fur on the back is, is painted with these sort of dappled bits of gray. It's absolutely stunning. And yet what's wonderful about this picture is that, as you said, beyond the, the horse itself, you've got this implied storyline, this, this rather small flash of lightning in the distance has a very powerful effect on the picture uh, because it seems to set a mood. Um, it, you can just imagine uh, lightning flashing or the great crack of lightning in the sky. And there's just this sudden moment when the horse, as it were, notices it or hears it. So if horses stood on tiptoes, it would suddenly be up on tiptoes and all alert. Yes. And to have captured that feeling, and also it's set at night, isn't it? Or at least in some, perhaps not in night, but at least a really dark sky where maybe it's that black sky just before a storm. There's no, there's no sunlight here. So it's got that doomy, slightly hellish atmospheric condition and this wonderful moment of, of a tension. And then the horse lit rather miraculously by some kind of impossible light. Um, in the middle of it. And it, I mean, this is a, a fabulous painting. Yeah, I can't, can't agree with you more. Good. Well, that's marvellous. I mean, Jericho, I, I love Jericho for his emotional honesty in his pictures. And he too was, like Stubbs, obsessed with horses. And he, he made a special study of, did you know, of horses' rear ends. Um, there's lots of Jericho pictures that are just a row upon row of horses mm. in a stable, and he's just painting their hindquarters. Um, mm. And that gives you an idea of how dedicated he was. Mm. Uh, in well, glad he never painted me then. God, that would have taken a big canvas. <laughs> but he was. And he, when he painted the raft of the Medusa, he, he literally painted all the bits of body, didn't he? He got it from the morgues. He would collect people's arms and legs and, and painted these really gruesome um, uh, sketches of dismembered bodies. I mean, he, he went all the way, didn't he, to try and get to the truth, to get to the facts, to learn how to do things. Yeah. And just as he painted the dismembered bodies for the, the great raft of the Medusa, the most probably the most famous painting in the Louvre, you know, so he went all the way with his horse. And I mean, you could just, oh, you could just fall in love and go crazy just on the way he's done the sheen on on the horse's shank is that the right word shank yes, is that a shank i think on so. the horse's shank i mean yeah. and i love its lovely little expression as well on the face and i think there's even, even a bit of dribble coming out of its mouth it's just a, such an emotional picture it just it bangs you in the heart and i mean i'm not a great horse lover but you know if, if were i ever to be one this would be the kind of horse i'd like to have i mean it's just fabulous absolutely fabulous good well i feel like i'm doing well on my list so far well do with things you might like should we should we move forward to the one that i let you generously include which is uh, the the blue horse by Franz Mark? Do you want to tell us? Um... Well, absolutely. You know, I mean, obviously, I was trying to save you from being stuck totally in the past. So we're only we're going to be stuck in a slightly more recent past with Franz Mark and a painting that was painted in 1911. Franz Mark was a German expressionist, amongst the greatest, um, probably, and um, he was renowned for painting animals, and he was also He's very famous as the founder member of um, an important group of artists who are called the Blower Reiter, the Blue Rider Group. And the Blue Rider Group, which consisted basically of Franz Mark, Kandinsky, uh, and August Macker, um, they were a group of artists before the First World War who took some of the lessons of the French. Um, artists like Matisse, Derain, artists who were called the Fauves, remember that? Matisse and his bunch were called the Fauves. And they were really into colour, simplification, taking the world and expressing their feelings about things through colour and big brush strokes, mm -hmm. much influenced by Van Gogh. Mm -hmm. And so the Fauves were a big deal um, in European art before the First World War. And when the influence of the Fauves got to Germany, this bunch, uh, Franz Mark, August Macker, Kandinsky, they took all that freedom of expression with all the colors and all the brushstrokes. But what they added to it was a very Germanic worldview, a different kind of worldview. What's happening here is that Mark took the horse and used it as a symbol of what he thinks of as an unspoiled nature, an unspoiled world. So he has written and made clear that for him, horses in the landscape were a kind of reminder of how we were all born in paradise before we sinned and that there was this natural world to which we belonged naturally and which modern the modern world modern civilization has spoiled and is spoiling so you know all his art you don't get 
trains, you don't get any of the stuff the futurists put in, you don't get fast cities, you don't get skyscrapers, you just get animals in nature trying to suggest a world that is as yet unspoiled. So that was his big thing. And, and horses were the things he painted over and over again. This is the greatest of his horse paintings. It hangs in this place in Munich um, called the Lambach House, which is, um, you know, in Munich, there's that big central park, the English Garden, where they have the beer festival. And there's a fantastic collection of museums in and around it. One is the notorious Haus der Kunst, which was the, the, the big gallery the Germans, the Nazis built to show off their art. And then the Lambus House at the back has got all the more progressive stuff, the stuff that was branded degenerate by the Nazis, as was indeed Franz Marc. He was branded degenerate. But of course, he wasn't degenerate. He was a spiritual artist who tried to find a way to convey those big German feelings, but using animals. And in this case, a beautiful blue horse. Mm. It's a lovely picture. I didn't know that the Nazis didn't like Franz Mark. Um, not least because oh yeah, they he, got he, all his work was scattered, confiscated, thrown out. Really? Of course, he was absolutely labelled yeah numero uno degenerate artist. God, I would have thought that someone who died um, in the First World War, uh, the siege of Verdun, they might have offered up as some kind of artistic hero. But no. Well, well, where you died didn't count. It was, it was the art itself is what they were after. No logic there. So it's it's a lovely picture, and one of a number of pictures he did like this of horses. In fact, do you think uh, that a friend's mark might enter our shortlist next week for group portraits of horses? We can't do him twice, so we can't. To, there are so okay. many other ones. We That's can a rule. To. Right. Um, I could see why we might, because I, I really love this picture, and I love his group horses too. Great movement in them. Should we go back a little bit in time? We're going to go. Uh, I'm afraid we've we've got to have Van Dyck in my favourite artist, Sir Anthony Van Dyck, who was very keen on horses. Uh, he mm. studied with Rubens, who was a horse uh, breeder and would go riding every day. So horses would be some of the things that uh, Rubens' pupils would would study. And this uh, particular painting is a sketch, actually, by Van Dyck, painted when he was quite young, in about 1615. Uh, and it belongs to Christchurch Museum in Oxford. It's a study for a picture of St. Sebastian. And uh, what I absolutely love about this uh, picture of a horse, it's a horse sort of riding towards us, uh, it's got its its head up and its eyes are slightly wild and its ears are back. So it's it's under some duress, but it's it's moving towards us and it's got a soldier in armor on his back. And what I really love about this picture is it's when you look up close, it's hardly there at all. It's on a spare canvas with just the just the gray ground layer. And the horse itself is hardly drawn with just a few dark strokes and a few white highlights and that lovely dry brush strokes that Van Dyke does. Uh, when the paint seems hardly to be there. And I think for an artist who at the age of about 15 or 16 can convey everything you want in a picture of a horse, uh, drama, uh, muscle, power, movement, in such a slight, sketchy picture, I think is a phenomenal achievement. Mm. It is an impressive achievement, but it is slight and sketchy. There are better horses in Van Dyke, and bigger ones, certainly, um, and, and obviously tons more in, in Rubens, etc. So as an example of uh, one of the great horse paintings of all time, which I sort of thought we were looking, you know, this is what we we're looking for, I can't honestly say I would put it up there. Um, obviously, it is interesting in other ways. It's great that he's so young. And this was one of the pictures that was stolen, wasn't it, from the Christchurch Picture Gallery? Yes, last year. it was stolen um, in March last year. So if anybody sees this in their local antique shop, tell us, because yeah, it shouldn't that's be right. there. It shouldn't be there, and it probably shouldn't be on this list either. <laughs> uh, now, uh, Christchurch Picture Gallery is, is a wonderful location. I'm, I'm very, very lucky because my daughter went to Christchurch. Um, she was uh, studying biology there. It did mean that every time I went to see her, she had this fantastic room, you know, on the main quadrangle at Christchurch in a room designed by Christopher Wren, you know, part of Tom's Tower. Unbelievable. So you'd pop out of there of an afternoon, go into the chapel, which is beautiful, and then you'd go into the picture gallery and look at the Karachi and the Tintoretto and, in those days, the Van Dyke. So I'd like to tell you I remember it vividly, but I don't um, because it is quite a... It's a slight and, and delightful sketch. And look, look, you're never going to get any arguments from me about how good Van Dyck is. Of course he was, and I'm with you and all that. This particular picture, I think, deserves to be, deserves to be placed in the um, great promising future ahead of him sometime in the category rather than the great horse picture already. Okay. Did you know that uh, there was a horse called Anthony Van Dyck that won the Derby in 2019? Van Dyke and I do have something in common. We're both um, horses who won the Derby. 
It's a class thing, isn't it, Bendora? I mean, <laughs> I, I might have a pig named after me somewhere. Or more, more probably a, a field of potatoes, something like that would suit me better. But yes, you're welcome to your thoroughbred racehorse past. Uh, let's move on to something more significant. Our final entry in my offering to find the best individual depiction of a horse in Western art is the gilt bronze statue of the Emperor Marcus Aurelius, which is in the Capitoline Museum in Rome. This was made in about 175 AD. Marcus Aurelius, the last of the so-called five good emperors, um, made famous, of course, in more modern times in the film Gladiator, played by Richard Harris. Uh, the, the extraordinary thing about this statue um, is that it has basically stood in Rome since it was made um, uh, until today. In fact, it was outside until 1981 when they took it inside and restored it. Now, if you'd been in Rome when it was made, uh, it wouldn't have been that rare a sight because there was there were more than 20 of these things of emperors scattered about the city. This is the only one that survived. What I love about it, it's it's one of those things, one of those Roman artworks that just really hits home what they got so excited about in the Renaissance. Because if this had been made by cast by Leonardo da Vinci in the in the 16th century, you wouldn't have thought twice about it. I mean, as as a work of art and a piece of engineering, it's quite extraordinary. The Marcus Aurelius is is on the horse. Um, there's a great sense of movement as it moves forward. And the horse is sort of strong and muscly, but Marcus Aurelius is is controlling it. And that's why the horse's head is sort of slightly coming back at the emperor. So it's a beautiful depiction of a horse, but it's also a depiction of, of a strong emperor in control of a strong beast. Indeed. And that made it a very, very influential uh, piece of sculpture, didn't it? Uh, there are any number of descendants of this much later in art history, usually painted, you know, strong emperors, powerful kings, people on horses, essentially trying to make the same point about, about leadership. The reproduction in the courtyard, which stands on a plinth designed by Michelangelo, of course, mm -hmm. in the, you know, the top of the hill, the, the, the Capitoline Hill, has this fantastic sense of place about it because it's on the plinth, it's in the middle of the square. It looks, it looks powerful, doesn't it? And then when you come across the actual artwork in the museum, you know, it's crowded against the roof. It's surrounded by these kind of modernist white bits. And I must say, having filmed it a few times, it, it doesn't quite have the same air of authority that you're talking about. Um, and I found myself dashing between the original indoors and the reproduction outdoors, just to get a real sense of what it might actually convey as a sculpture. And I, I found myself spending more time outside than inside. It was weird. But the pose is interesting because it's very ambiguous. So the emperor is sitting on his horse. I agree with you about the, the horse being in a, with a sense of movement about it. But he's got this hand gesture, hasn't he? And no one's quite been able to decide what it is that he's saying. There's one story that there used to be another figure at the bottom, wasn't there, of a, of a banished um, a barbarian of some kind who was about to be trampled. He, he was removed, leaving just the emperor with his hand in this, with this gesture of control, as if he's telling a dog to sit or something, isn't he? So... Um, it, it it's it does ooze that kind of power, and the of course you know the reason why it survived uh, for so long. The only one of these many portraits, uh, equestrian portraits of Roman emperors that survived. You know why, don't you? I don't. Tell me. It's because it was mistaken for a sculpture of Constantine. Oh. So when the Christians basically took over the Roman Empire with uh, Constantine coming out and emerging as a, as, a, as a Catholic, as a Christian. Um, Whereas all the other pagan Roman emperors and their statues were all melted down and turned into cannons and coinage, mm -hmm. because this was thought to be Constantine, um, it was kept and, and allowed to stay there. And of course, if you go into the Capitoline Museum, you've got all those other bits of Constantine from other real statues of him. He's the great founder of, of Roman Christianity mm -hmm. inside the Capitoline with giant foot, isn't there? And the giant head and all these yes. wonderful colossuses. So um, it's, it's been lucky to survive all that time. Unimaginably influential. Yeah. I mean, it was the great equestrian statue, the, the great equestrian example in art for all of best part of 2000 years you know yeah. people could not help if they're looking back at the past for something to influence them it was always the statue of marcus aurelius unimaginably important yes and one of the most famous i suppose is uh, dura whose print of the knight basically follows this pose van dyke's picture of charles I on horseback yeah uh, it's the it... same and two artists of course who went to rome and probably saw the original statue yeah and of course the great one the best of all i think in terms of the 
influenced by it is the great Donatello in Padua, that, that um, equestrian statue of, of Gattamalata, the great Condottiero. Yeah. That's fantastic. That's sort of Renaissance version of this, but totally influenced by it. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, unimaginably important, probably more important than pleasing, I would say. But yes. um, And how sad that we don't know the name of the person who, who made this great statue uh, and who had such a legacy on art history. But why don't we tot up our scores so Taya has sent us her scores, and you sent them too. And I now have the final results. Are you ready? In fifth place, uh, it is the picture by Sorrentino van Dyck from Christchurch Museum. Uh, and please, listeners, keep an eye out for it, because although it hasn't made it to our top spot, it's still a fantastic picture, and we need to get it back. The next one in fourth place is the Roman statue of the Emperor Marcus Aurelius. In third place, I'm quite surprised mm. by this, the France Mark, the Blue Horse by France. Is that Mark. all? Is it not top? No, no. Good Lord. You haven't been able to sway tear. The runner-up is uh, George Stubbs's Whistle Jacket in the yeah. National Gallery, which means fits. that the winner, the best individual depiction of a horse in Western art history, oh. is Jericho's Horse Frightened by Lightning. Do you know what? That's a very good decision. I totally agree with that. It's a fabulous painting. In the National Gallery in London, folks, if you're, if you're one of our um, Australian listeners or the chap in Tokyo <laughs> um, or that new person in Boston um, or, or, or the one in New Mexico or the two Californian ones, when you come to London, go to the National Gallery and have a look at that beautiful, dark and strange Jericho. Great choice, Bendy. Well done. Good. No, it was fun. And next week we will do uh, group pictures of horses. More horses. You can't have too many horses, can you? Well, we better move on from that for a minute. Uh, we're going to go to our favourite part of the, the podcast, On the Wall. Uh, and at the end of that, we've got a big announcement to make. Everybody's dying to know who's won the Waldy and Bendy t-shirt for coming up with the very best metaversal moniker for you and me, right? So we've had a patchy but interesting response. Anyway, you've got a winner and that's going to be announced after On the Wall, which is coming up very, 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 very soon. On the Wall. Bindi, there you go, on the wall. The bit that you like, that I like, that the world likes. You get a chance to have whatever you want on your wall during the lockdown. So what have you gone for this time? Well, I've gone for a portrait of Her Majesty the Queen, Elizabeth II, uh, painted by Lucian Freud, the late Lucian Freud. This is a picture uh, which belongs to the Queen personally, actually, so we can't put a link to it up on the Royal Collection, but I'm sure, I think there's a few photographs of it knocking around still. That'll be on zczfilms.com. It's a very small painting, begun in May 2000, and it shows uh, the Queen with her diamond crown on, and it's an extraordinary portrait, this. Lucian Freud, he took 17 sittings over this picture. It wasn't completed until December 2001, so it took nearly two years. And we'll put up on the website too, there's a wonderful photo taken by Freud's assistant, David Dawson, of the Queen sitting for this portrait. Uh, she had to go and sit in the conservation studio at Buckingham Palace, and um, it looks like she's in sort of someone's shed, although she's sitting on a suitably gilded chair. I don't know if you remember the finished result when it was uh, unveiled, this portrait. It made the front page of the Sun newspaper. And do you remember what the headline was? It said, uh, it's a travesty, Your Majesty, uh, because it's, it's really quite an extraordinary portrait. It's not one of Freud's finest, I have to say. Uh, the Queen looks like she's been stung by about a dozen bumblebees. Her face is all swollen up. She doesn't really look that queenly. Um, but you see, I mean, there's all sorts of conjectures you can make about this portrait. But the reason I want to have it on my wall is because I think it's just, it's one of those few pictures that really makes you laugh. Uh, I love this picture. It just looking at it always cracks me up. And and I don't really know who the joke is on. I think Lucian Freud was having a joke here because he was quite a mischievous, eccentric character. And the fact that he took nearly two years to finish this tiny picture of the Queen um, and made her sit in this little chair in a shed 17 occasions, I think he was having a good old laugh. And I want to borrow this picture and have a good old laugh as well. <laughs> Well, I'm with you on the laughing, um, and I'm with you on the fact that it's not a very good picture, um, at least not a very good Lucian Freud. Now, he could be brilliant, and there's no question about it. Lucian Freud could be as good as anybody, one of the great portrait painters and, and one of the great figurative painters of the 20th century. Uh, but he couldn't do this. He couldn't do 
that old fashioned business of having to knock off a portrait relatively quickly by his standards, 17 sittings is nothing for Lucian Freud. It fails on the most obvious of levels, which is it doesn't really look like the Queen. You know, facially, he can't quite grasp the likeness. And the fact that it's just literally a squashed in head, it's not not much bigger than a postage stamp, you know, um, gives it no atmosphere beyond the face. There's nothing else going on except this face looming out at you. Doesn't look much like her. The crown looks about as real as the crown she's wearing on a postage stamp. It doesn't quite work. It's what is known in the trade as a bad Lucian Freud. <laughs> now, whether he wanted to do it on purpose or not is an interesting argument. I mean, I, I suspect that he was trying damn hard to do as well as he could, but it just wasn't one in his skill set, really, to, to produce flattering portraits of the Queen wasn't in his skill set, and to catch uh, likenesses straight away wasn't in his skill set. So I think it's the kind of thing that, if it wasn't for the fact that he had to show something, that he had to do it, he'd been commissioned to do this damn thing, paint the queen, he had to produce something. I reckon this would have been chucked out the back of the studio um, uh, and, and stuck up against the wall. Um, no, it's not very good. Now, as it happens, now because you know I've been around a long time, I have a kind of parallel story to this to this picture, and it involves um, Sir John Richardson. Do you know Richardson? Uh, the biographer of Picasso. Yes, and also a kind of man about town um, in the 1950s and 60s, a kind of ex-Christie's, used to work for Christie's, um, absolute kind of bon viveur who, with whom I made a film about Picasso, yes. While I was making the film with Picasso, he was being painted by Lucian Freud. Oh. So he's an old buddy of Freud's. And you know what used to happen, right? If we were filming, we would make an arrangement with John Richardson to get filming at eight, at um, quarter past seven, the phone would ring and it was Lucian Freud. And these two old guys, they could be on the phone for three hours in the morning <laughs> talking to each other. God knows about what. And it didn't just happen once. This happened pretty much every day. And John Richardson, who was a, you know, a wonderful storyteller and everything, um, he'd say, oh, well, Lucian's, Lucian's painting my portrait. He's, he's painting my portrait. And so he was, and Lucian Freud was painting his portrait. And every time John Richardson came back to London, they'd do a bit of dabbling and do more of it. But this portrait had, had been taking five years, I think it was at that point. So he'd been painting it forever. Hmm. It's the same size. It did eventually turn up at a Sotheby's sale when they sold off Richardson's possessions. It's the same size, if not smaller, than the portrait of the Queen. And it doesn't look a bit like John Richardson either. Hmm. And it's the same kind of thing, a sort of squashed in face, you know, three quarter size. I'll put it up on the ZCZ.com website as well so people can compare. I think ultimately we're talking here about irrefutable evidence that Lucian Freud, for all his talents, couldn't really do the commissioned portrait. Mm. This wasn't in his skill set. Well, isn't he supposed to have said that all his portraits are autobiographical? And I suppose it's it's a bit of a trope in art history, isn't it, that all portraitists end up painting portraits themselves. And it is true that um, portrait sittings are battles of will between the, what the sitter wants and what the artist wants. But the point with Freud is that sometimes he never even seems to, to bother trying to get the, the portrait <laughs> of the sitter down. Um, so perhaps this really tells us what he thought of the Queen. And I think it's, it's um, all the better for us. What I really want to know is where it's hanging now because it's not mm. part of the, the Royal Collection Trust. It belongs to the Queen personally. And I want to know where it's hanging, whether she'll miss it when I have it on my wall for a few weeks, or whether it's actually uh, in a downstairs cupboard somewhere. It'll be in the cellar. There's no, no chance on earth that, <laughs> that Her Majesty would like to have this on the wall and that she would even <laughs> like it. I'm absolutely certain. I don't think she's done a Churchill on it. I don't, I don't think it's been burnt, you know, in, in an <laughs> oven at the back of the garden. But I, I, I can tell you right now, that is not on show in a prominent place in Buckingham Palace. No chance. Maybe it'll be sent out for Harry and Meghan and their LA pad. This <laughs> is a welcome gift. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's move on. Yes, Lucian Freud, you know, brilliant artist, but, but he didn't have that talent in the wrists that you need as a portraitist. You know, that Van Dyke had, that Sargent had, you know, the great portraitists, they've got that flexibility in the wrist. He, that's not one of his things. Um, but never mind, Her Majesty, uh, it was brave of you, brave of you yeah. to expose yourself to him. And we salute you, ma'am. Now, I'm going to go for, I'm going back in time, Bendy. I'm going to go almost as far back in time as you can go in art. I'm going to go back to a, a statue that was found 
in the earth in a village called Willendorf in Austria. It was dug up in 1907, I think it was. And it, for a long time, was thought to be the oldest known statue. Certainly when I, when I studied art history, it was, it was called the oldest known statue. Now we found other statues like it, which are probably older. But a rough date, 25,000 years old to 30,000 years. That's what people reckon it is, you know, from, from around 25,000 years ago. And it is, of course, the so-called Willendorf Venus. What it is, is this beautiful little limestone carving of a plump woman's body. And uh, she's got big boobs, big tummy. Her mound of Venus is prominent as well. It's a sculpture that the moment you pick it up, you just know it's referring to ideas of, of fertility and procreation. You know, there's too much emphasis on those things for it mm -hmm. not to. I mean, she, she hasn't even got a visible face. It's as if what you see is her hair done up in these kind of corn lines of, of, of hair weaving. But it's a beautiful thing. It's really warm and cuddly. And I know that because I've seen it and I've held it. Um, I went to the Natural History Museum in, in Vienna, which is where it stays. And I made a little film about it, which I'm going to, again, put the link to on ztzfilms.com. Mm -hmm. And it lives in this little box in the Natural History Museum in, in Vienna. And they take it out for you. And it, they let me touch it once. Uh, and it cuddles in your hand. It, it's so rounded and sweet and lovely. It nestles in your hand. So she hasn't got any legs, right? The Vindendorf Venus. So it's obviously never made to stand up as a yeah. sculpture. Yeah. Meant to be carried around and, and held and felt and stroked. That's the feeling you get from the actual artwork. Now, I just want the world to get fertile again. You know, I want, I want the post-COVID world to come up. Um, and my, my thinking on this is that this beautiful piece of sculpture, it, if it worked, if it was efficacious back in 25, 30,000 30, years ago, why shouldn't it still be efficacious now? So what I want to do is I want to get it home to stroke it love it i don't want to have more children i've got two beautiful daughters that's enough for me but i do want to urge fertility and happiness and good vibes into the world into the post-covid world so i might spend the whole week just stroking it and perhaps even incanting some strange incantation to try and make this happen but it's a beautiful thing and um i just can't wait for it to get to my place okay i think we should warn your two lovely daughters about it because it feels like you're yearning to be a grandparent so is this a hurry up <laughs> each to his own no no in matters of procreation each to his own yeah. but it, it's it's good vibes is what i'm after and this thing's really got them hasn't it i was gonna ask you about uh, the size of it i'm so interested to hear you've held it because it, it does look like it's something that should nestle in your hand and had a had a use it wasn't a, an object for a wall it, it, it had a use didn't it and you had to hold it totally portable as i said it doesn't stand up it's got no legs yeah, yeah. and am i right in thinking they've since found others quite a similar similar type of statues so this was uh, this was must have been a sort of fairly common theme around yeah around europe at that time there's about well just about a couple of hundred of them now these wow. they're called paleolithic venuses there's some controversy about whether they should be called venuses but i'm not going to go down that path because yeah. it's the simplest way of identifying them you know what i mean when yeah. i say that yeah. Yeah. um but they are uh, there are a few thin ones in there uh, to be fair they're not mm -hmm. all um the sort of larger woman shape but the majority of them are. Um, it's as if, if think back. You know, these were made during during the you know the last big ice age. Um, you're going to need survival to be something that that you that you can try and ensure through magic, through potency, through praying to the gods or whoever it is you believed in. That you know there is nothing more important in that ice age Paleolithic world than to have kids and to survive. You know that's what it was all about. So you're going to reach for whatever's possible, and if if some amulets or sacred sculptures, things are around, you know, that have a magical potential for you and that can help you in that, you're going to make them and you're going to treasure them. So these larger women, usually the emphasis is on these bigger breasts, on the pelvic girdle, um, and the way they hold their hands quite often. Uh, that's always really interesting, I find, in a lot of these sculptures. So the, the Willendorf Venus, she's, you can hardly see her hands, but they're kind of held across her big breasts. And of course, in those days, just imagine if they tried to carve hands that were sticking out sideways. You know, that takes a different kind of skill, doesn't it? And that's a very sophisticated type of sculpture to try and make 
very difficult really to, to find you know how to carve hands that are sticking out so it's easier to to have it within this encompassed shape the, the overall shape of the hands are sort of inscribed on the breasts but you know when you see pregnant women they do that they they, they kind of put their hands over their tummy or they, they kind of protect themselves and i think there's an even element of naturalism to that but obviously you know these things played some kind of critical role in Ice Age civilization. There have been so many of them found now. There must have been so many, many more of them that we haven't found. Uh, everybody must have had one of these. You know, it must have been so important to have one, to use it, to treasure it. Yeah. Well, they are amazing survivors. And isn't it exciting that these things can still be dug up? Um, we touched upon the Marcus Aurelius. That's another amazing survivor. I do worry, in my gloomy moments, I worry what of our era is going to survive, especially all this digital stuff is going to vanish. So what will we leave behind? Just a big gap in art history. Well, it's not going to be Beeple's 70 million quid NFT, is it? Um, that's for sure. But on the other hand, neither should we forget that everybody in this new digital world that we're talking about, everybody needs a good digital moniker, Bindi. So let's not forget, we started this competition last week where people who are dying to get one of our Wardy and Bendy t-shirts, and again, we'll put up the Wardy and Bendy t-shirt again for you on the podcast pages of zczfilms.com. Um, and we had a prize for the people who suggested the best, uh, what I believe is known as a metaversal moniker for, for me, for me and you, Wardy and Bendy. So we had various answers on, on Twitter and on Instagram. I'm going to read a few out for you, Bendy. And then we're going to make a decision about it. Uh, a chap called Paul Stokes, who goes under the moniker of Stokesy, he suggests, it's, he says, hello, gents, I suggest for your meta monikers, Wald D, so that's Wald and then hyphen D, and Squiggle. And by Squiggle, I mean it's a, it's a sign rather than a name. Um, and he, as he explains, Bendy is the prince of art history. So it's only fitting that he should be a symbol like Mr. Rogers Nelson. Mr. Rogers Nelson was Prince, you know, Prince the pop star. There was a period in his life when he refused to call himself Prince. He called himself the Squiggle. And he had this abstract sign for himself, the Squiggle. Well, you're that, you see, you're the Squiggle and oh I'm Walt D. Good. That's Stokesy, Paul Stokes. Yeah, I think that's a contender. Ellen Sim. Uh, who's at Ellen Sim up on the Twitter. Uh, she says, uh, in the metaverse, your digital doppelgangers are Nifty Waldy and Bitcoin Bendy. Mm -hmm. And we could travel along the Appius Claudius. I don't know quite sure what that means. But anyway, she's wishing us all the best, Nifty Waldy and, and Bitcoin Bendy. I think that's a little bit, that's a little bit too obvious. I'm not sure about that one. But Stanley, the artist Stanley, he suggests tall and sideways tall. Now, I presume you're tall and I'll be <laughs> sideways tall, right? That sounds to me like that's being rude. I love that one. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> that, that's saying I'm fat, isn't it, basically? <laughs> We're not having that one either. Hey, forget it, Stanley, artist Stanley. Betty Weldergin helped. I, I'm not sure that's her real name, actually, but that's what she calls herself. Betty Weldergin helped. Uh, she suggested the wall and the bend. So I guess I'll be the wall, I'll be the bend. Good. Yeah. Um, I'm not too keen on that one either, really. So for me, it's still Stokesy in the lead. Mark Copenhagen on Twitter. Hello, Mark. He's, for some reason, only gone for you. He said, Dyke, Dyke, go for you. Now, I like Dyke, Dyke, go, but I'm not in it. So that can't work, can it? Oh, I like this. Yes, my favourite artist, Van Dyke. Dyke, Dyke, go. Yes, that's Dyke, good. Dyke, Dyke, go, but then what am I? Well, well, perhaps we have to have two winners. Uh, uh, Creative Caravan, well, I think is our friend Melanie in, in Istanbul, isn't it? Hello, Melanie. She's gone for, and it's all spelt in a, in a kind of tweety way, not the way you'd imagine, Reading Boy and Restoration Slayer. So I guess you're the Restoration Slayer and I'm the Reading Boy. I'm not keen on that. And then there's a, there's a load more. My good friend from Poland, Jakub Ukwinski, he's got Zeta, CZ, Eta and Debendi. But that's too complicated, isn't it? ZZ, CZ, Eta and Debendi. Hmm. I don't think that would trip off the tongue. And PJ Marks has got a couple here. Dis and Dat, which I guess I'd be Dis and you'd be Dat. And one that I have a kind of quite, a, I think it's quite good, Test and Trace. So <laughs> <laughs> you'd be Trace and I'd be Test. Uh, welcome to Test and Traces, Adventures in Art. So uh, there are a few more, but I've, I've done the best ones for you. Um, in my opinion, and I'm sh tell me if you support me in this, the winner has to be 
Da-da-da-da-da-da. Stokesy, Paul Stokes for Wald D and the Squiggle. What do you think, Bendy? I prefer Dyke Dyke Ghost. So thank you for that. But because Stokesy called me, what did he say? I'm the prince of something. Yeah, he said you're like prince. The prince of art history. Flattery is always good. I like that. Okay. Stokesy gets a T-shirt. Stokesy, Paul Stokes, wherever you are, you are our winner. And all the rest of you, you should have tried harder. <laughs> um, there'll be more T-shirts coming up in the weeks ahead, I hope, for other things. But from this particular podcast, it's goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. Waldy and Bendy.